Okay, turn with me to Matthew 10. We're going to be starting again. We're looking at passage uh, verses 24 to 42. And uh, we just started introducing it last week. And then our time ran out. So we will briefly review and then, then uh, charge ahead. And we will not finish it today. Let's read the passage again. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. This passage of scripture is one of the most crucial, definitive, monumental passages on the subject of discipleship. In this chapter, we've seen that the 12 have been called, they've responded, they're following, they're being trained, they're going to be sent to the world, to reach the world. And from that very special sending that he gives them, Jesus transitions here in verse 24 and begins to teach general principles that apply to all of us who name the name of Christ, all of us who are his disciples. Uh, Jesus really draws discipleship down to some very clear issues. If you've ever wondered what the real stuff of commitment is and where the bottom line of consecration comes and what it really means to be set apart or sanctified, I think you will find the answer here in this passage. Uh, Last time we spoke of Jonathan Edwards and In his own statement of dedication to God, Edwards wrote, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body 
or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told him I have given myself wholly to him. I've given every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect, but I purpose to be absolutely his. I think you would agree that that's true and complete consecration. And because he meant what he wrote, God used him far beyond his imagination. And so we're called to that kind, that level of commitment here in the 10th chapter of Matthew. I'm just forewarning you that that's what you're going to face as we go through this section. Uh, as I said before, Jesus doesn't hold anything back. Uh, he tells them the cost of being his disciple. In fact, you could entitle this section, The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, you don't do anyone a favor by trying to get them to accept Christ without letting them know what's really involved in such acceptance. Uh, that's how we get so many false believers. Uh, if they knew the truth, they wouldn't come. We know that's true because in John 6, when Jesus talk of, talked about being the bread of life and the living bread, and he told him, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, meaning you've got to be involved in my dying and my death. It says at that point, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. It's more than they were ready to handle. And then we studied the scribe in Matthew 8, who came to Jesus. Remember, he said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The guy left. He wanted a little comfort in his ministry. The next fellow came to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go, but permit me first to go and bury my father. <clears throat> what he meant was, my dad's not dead yet, but I want to wait till he dies and I get my inheritance, and then I'll follow you. Uh, and Jesus says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And the implication of that text is the guy turned around and walked away. He wasn't interested. Then another fellow came along and says, I'll follow you, but first permit me to say farewell to those at home. And he's tied to his family, and Jesus says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, he was very upfront. He says, it'll cost you your family. It'll cost you inheritance. It'll cost you your comfort, and those are my terms. And they didn't want them. Uh, we don't do anyone, as I said, any favors by introducing them to Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He'll forgive all your sins and solve all your problems. Just accept him and everything will be great. And you get eternal life in heaven as a bonus. Uh, no, both the gate and the way that lead to eternal life are narrow and constricted. And that's the way the Lord always presented it. So in the remainder of this chapter, Jesus presents a comprehensive definition of discipleship in which he gives us six identifying characteristics. Here they are, and we'll go through them one at a time, of course. A true disciple emulates his master. Second, he fears God more than the world. Third, he confesses the Lord. Fourth, he forsakes family. Fifth, he, for, he follows his call. At six, he receives a reward. Let's begin with a disciple emulates his master. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, 
nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Now think about it. After hearing what Jesus had, had to say in verses 16 to 23, at that point the disciples would be saying to themselves, man, we're going to be sheep among wolves. We're going to get flogged in the synagogue. We're going to get dragged before pagan courts. Our own families are going to put us to death. We're going to be hated by all kinds of people for his sake. And we're going to be persecuted all over the country, so we'll have to keep running from city to city. What kind of offer is that? And then Jesus says, the disciple's not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. Why should you expect to get any different treatment than I receive? Wow. Did you hear that? He, he just keeps on giving them good news, doesn't he? Uh, now, this first statement is axiomatic, meaning it's self-evident. It's obviously true. You don't have to prove it. By definition, a disciple is beneath his teacher in wisdom and knowledge, and a slave is below his master in social and economic standing. <clears throat> also, by definition, a disciple who is genuinely a disciple learns from his teacher, and a slave who is genuinely a slave obeys his master. Now, in the first situation, we assume that the disciple chooses his teacher. He decides to follow and learn from that teacher. I mean, no one in this church forces you to come to this class every Sunday. You choose whether this class or another class, which teacher you're going to place yourself under. It's the same when I was in the university and in seminary. Whenever I had a choice, I chose which professors I would take classes from based on their reputation as a good professor. In the second situation, the master buys the slave. The slave didn't have a choice in the matter about who his master would be. But in either case, there's a role of submission, a role of subservience. We who are followers of Jesus Christ are under him. He is the teacher, and we are the disciples, the learners. The teacher is the one who knows. The learner doesn't know. The one who doesn't know isn't above the one who knows. And the master is the one who determines what the slave will do. And by definition, the slave is the one who does what his master tells him. So the Lord is simply saying the first basic rule of discipleship is that you submit yourselves to me. Your choice can be seen in the disciple-teacher motif, and my sovereignty is seen in the master-slave motif. And there you have the duality of the doctrine of salvation. We choose to be a disciple to learn at the feet of Jesus, but he sovereignly chooses us as his slaves. Uh, but in either case, it's axiomatic that we are submissive. That's how it's going into this relationship. When you become a Christian and you affirm that you will follow Jesus Christ, it's axiomatic that you were saying, I submit to your commands. I submit to the truth that you will teach me. I submit to the orders you will give me and I will carry them out. It's that basic. Now, there are both positive and negative aspects to this. Let me talk about the positive for a minute. The disciple is not above his teacher. Jesus often uses this phrase. He also uses it over in Luke 640. 
So it was a favorite phrase of his. And he says it in this way. Listen carefully. A student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. You see what he said there? So what's the first perspective that a pupil has towards his teacher? That someday he will be like his teacher. Now, so what does it mean to be a disciple then? It means to pursue being like Christ. That's the very basic element of discipleship. From the positive side, Jesus is simply saying, when you're fully trained, you're going to be like your teacher. And that's true discipleship. You're a learner, learning to be like Christ, learning and growing towards Christ's likeness. 1 John 2.6 sums it up. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If you go around saying that you abide in Christ and he is your master and you are his student, that he is your teacher and you're his pupil, then you ought to express his life in the way that you live. That's the goal of all discipleship, as Jesus clearly stated in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What does that involve? Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. In other words, a disciple is one who knows the word and obeys the word, and you teach them to do it. You teach them the word, and they obey the word. You have the same idea in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We are to be dominated by the word of Christ so that we become like him. So all the way along through life, we're going towards Christ's likeness. Now, what is what's going to be the very obvious result of that? If you and I move to be more like Christ, then the world is going to treat us like it treated him, right? That's what he's saying. So look at the negative side. And the negative side is really the strength of the context here. I drew the positive from Luke 640. Uh, but the context here in this passage is the negative side. He simply says, a disciple is not above his teacher, and a slave is not above his master. Uh, in the context of persecution, the topic is what he just said previously in verses 16 to 23. In other words, you don't expect to be treated any differently than I am, do you? I mean, if they treated me this way, why should they treat you any differently? Now listen carefully. The more like, Jesus is saying, the more like me you are, the more they will treat you like they treated me. We can kind of gauge our own Christian life that way, can't we? The more like Christ we are, the more the world will treat us like it treated Christ. Maybe we won't don't get much persecution because there's not that much similarity. The context is persecution, hostility, and death. And we have to be ready to accept that. Uh, now, this is an amazing call to discipleship. I mean, I want you to come and be my disciples and be like me and get ready to pay the supreme price. That's what he's saying. 
And if you aren't willing to come on those terms, then you're not going to come. Now at verse 25, look at verse 25 and see how he repeats the same thing and he throws in a very insightful phrase. It is enough. He says, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. The word used here means to suffice, to be sufficient. What he is saying is that the one thing about a true disciple is that he is content to be like his teacher. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want or desire to be greater than his teacher. He's not on an ego trip. And a true slave is content not to go above his master, but to be like his master and to be faithful to him. It's sufficient for him. He's not in it for what he can get out of it. He's not going to try to escape what Jesus wouldn't or couldn't escape. He's willing to take it all. Nothing more, nothing less. That was the cry of the Apostle Paul's heart, too. He said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his what? Sufferings. Sufferings. Being conformed to his death. It's enough. It's sufficient. It will suffice. We don't ask any more than that. We don't ask to be loved by the world. We don't ask to be famous. We don't ask to be accepted. We don't ask to miss the persecution. We don't ask to be everybody's friend. We ask only to be like our Lord. And to pursue to be like him means to be treated like he was treated. That's all. So that's where you start. You assume that. And you know, you want to know how they were treated? Well, at the end of verse 25, Jesus gives an illustration. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? And here he continues to develop the same truth, but changes the figure from those of disciple, teacher, and slave master to that of head of the house and members of his household. Family members should not expect to be treated better than the head of the family is treated. And if they called him the devil and you're under him, what do you expect they're going to call you? That's the point. And it, that was a real situation. Jesus is saying they called him the devil. They called him Satan. Because Beelzebul is a reference to Satan. The term Beelzebul, which is sometimes found as Beelzebub, uh, was originally the name of a, a pagan Canaanite god. Uh, the name Beelzebul probably meant Lord of the Flies, and it was later changed to Beelzebul, which meant Lord of the Dwelling. Uh, but because that god was such a despicable deity, uh, his name had long been used by the Jews as an epitaph for Satan. And so Jesus' point was that if people called him Satan, they would surely call his disciples the same thing. And to show you that this was not an unrealistic statement, just Flip back or look over a page or so to chapter 9, verse 34. When Jesus had healed the two blind men and a demon-possessed mute man, it says, but the Pharisees were saying he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. In other words, he's working for the devil. So there they were 
believing themselves to be religiously erudite, the religiously astute, who supposedly knew God, but they were so far from the truth that they saw the holy, pure Son of God in human flesh, and they watched him heal, they heard him teach, and they said, he's demon-possessed, he's working for the prince of demons. Flip over to Matthew 12, 24. Here again, Jesus is healing and casting out demons. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. There again, they say he's working for Satan. Now, go back to our text in chapter 10, verse 25. Here Jesus says they're going to go beyond that. He says they'll call him Beelzebul. They won't say he works for Beelzebul or he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. They'll say he's Beelzebul, he's Satan. That's the ultimate blasphemy. And he tells the disciples, if they say that about me, what do you think they're going to say about you? What's his point? That you have to be willing to pay the price. The more you become like Christ, which is the goal of all discipleship, the more the world's going to treat you the way it treated him. And when it treats you the way it treated him, it's going to consider you to be evil because that's the way they perceived him. Jesus repeated this same warning to the disciples many times. Turn over to John 15 for a moment. John 15. Here in his final instruction to them, known as the Upper Room Discourse, starting at verse 18. He tells them, If the world hated, hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So once again, it's the same warning. He repeated it many times throughout his ministry to let them know exactly what commitment to him, to follow him, included. And a little while later in that same discourse in chapter 16, verse 2, he says to them, they will put you out of the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. So the point is this. The way they treated Christ was bad, and that's the way they're going to treat you. The more you become like Christ, the more you're going to get it. You become one of his disciples and you commit yourself to being like Christ. And Jesus wants you to know right from the very beginning that the more like him you become, the more the world system will resent you. Let me add a footnote here. In spite of this opposition, all this opposition, remember that the Spirit of God is moving in the hearts of God's elect throughout the world to redeem them. They may be unregenerate now, but if they are part of those whom God chose in him before the foundation of the world, they will be attracted by your testimony for Christ. You know, I would venture to say that many of you became Christians 
because you saw something in the life of someone else that you wanted. Perhaps you were going through some difficult circumstance. Uh, someone you knew who knew Christ was going through something similar and you saw the difference between the way they responded to the situation and how you felt and you wanted what they had. That's often the case. There was something attractive about their life. They had a joy and peace and a freedom from guilt, a sense of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life, and you wanted what they had. And so while we're becoming more like Christ, we will become more attractive to those whom God is calling to himself. But at the same time, we will become more disgusting to the system that hates Christ. There's no way around it. That is the price of discipleship. We become more attractive to those who are the elect and more repulsive to the world. So the first aspect of discipleship is that a disciple emulates his master. Everything begins at that point. And that leads us to the second aspect of true discipleship, and that is that a disciple fears God more than the world. A disciple fears God more than the world. Let's read again verses 26 to 31. <clears throat> Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Do you notice the phrase, do not fear? Three times in those six verses, Jesus repeats it. Verse 26, do not fear. Verse 28, do not fear. Verse 31, do not fear. He's saying, don't be afraid of the world. Why? Because having heard what he had to say in verses 16 to 23, the natural response is going to be that they're afraid. Verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the middle of wolves. Verse 17, he says, they're going to deliver you over the courts and flog you in the synagogues. Verse 18, you're going to be brought before kings and governors. Verse 19, they'll deliver you over. It's the idea of a prisoner brought before trial. Verse 21, your own family will betray you to death. Verse 22, you're going to be hated by everybody. Verse 23, you'll be persecuted everywhere you go. And then Jesus says, so then, guys, with that understanding, don't be afraid. We're told in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man brings a snare. That's so true. The fear of man strangles effective witness. It strangles evangelism. We don't want to get involved in certain kinds of service for the Lord because we fear it might be psychologically difficult for us. We don't want to create a problem in a relationship. We don't want others to think badly of us. We don't want to be persecuted. Last of all, we certainly don't want to be killed for our faith. We want to preserve ourselves. And in this overemphasis on self-preservation, we tend to bail out when someone starts questioning what we believe. But the Lord is saying, they're going to do this to you, but don't be afraid. Face it, be bold, and don't be afraid. All of us can speak of times when we just couldn't get it out for fear 
that we would be thought of as silly or rude or uneducated or stupid or whatever. Or we didn't want to get into a fight with someone. We find ourselves to be like Peter, standing in the courtyard while Jesus is on trial, afraid to say anything, and what comes out of our mouth doesn't even sound like a believer. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now, <clears throat> this is something the Lord said all the time to the disciples because it was so tough for them. Matthew 14, 27, he told them, take courage, do not be afraid. Matthew 28, 10, he told them, do not be afraid. Luke 12, 32, he says, do not fear. John 14, 27, during the upper room discourse, he says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. But just like them, we're often afraid. I mean, we're not afraid to talk to a group of other believers in a Sunday school class or a Bible study. Why? Because we all agree with one another. But send us out in the world and we become paralyzed with fear. It was Teddy Roosevelt who once said, there has never yet been a man who led a life of ease whose name is worth remembering. Don't be one of those who are always looking for an easy Christian life in order to avoid persecution. And so Jesus gives the disciples three reasons why they, and by extension us as his followers, are not to be afraid. First one's found in verses 26 and 27. It's vindication by God. He says in verse 26, Therefore do not fear them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Notice that the verse begins with the word therefore. So it's looking backwards to what was said previously, while the word for looks forward to what is about to be said. So what's he saying here? I think you can summarize it up this way. Therefore, if they're going to accuse me of being evil and satanic, and they're going to do the same to you, but don't be afraid, for in the end, God's going to set everything right. All truth and goodness and all falsehood and wickedness will be seen for what they really are. It's kind of a proverbial, obscure statement that simply means that someday God's going to take the lid off of everything and all things will be made just and right. And but that's not the way it is now. We're looked on as the scum of the world. The world's successful. The, the wicked prosper. But Christians are persecuted. Christians are put down. The more you stand for the right, the more the system hates you and the less you're rewarded. But someday that's all going to change and the truth will be made known. That's what that statement means. God is going to show who the real heroes are. God's going to uncover the real heroes. He's going to reward and vindicate his own. And the evil people are going to find out that all God has for them is vengeance. Your enemies cannot prevent your vindication. That's what he's saying. We've got to live with an eternal perspective. When we get hung up or stuck on worrying about the, what the world is going to say, we're looking at the wrong thing. What should we be looking? What what we should be looking at is what God's going to say in the end, right? Remember, 1 Corinthians four five tells us that when the Lord returns, He will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts, and then each one's praise will come to him from God. What greater motive could we have for faithfully serving the Lord and fearlessly facing the world? Why should we worry about 
unpopularity in this life when we know we'll be fully vindicated in the next. Why do you think the Bible talks about rewards for faithful believers over and over and over again? Revelation 22:12 says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Why do you think the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5:10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Why does he promise a crown of life and a crown of righteousness and a crown of glory? He does so to give us an eternal motive and perspective so that we're not looking to be vindicated in this life as the wise and the noble and the heroes of society. Rather, we're willing to confront an evil society and let God reward us in eternity. It's hard to get that perspective, isn't it? But that's what we're called to do. We're not to live for the moment when all the values are backwards, but for the future when God unveils what is truly real and reveals the hypocrites and shows who the real heroes were and rewards them forever. Sadly, a lot of Christians will trade in a little momentary popularity for an eternal reward. That's what it comes down to. Look with me for a moment at Luke 12. Luke 12. In chapter 11 there, Jesus has just castigated the Pharisees to their face for their hypocrisy. And then beginning in verse 1 of Luke 12, we're told at this time, after so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. Now that's a crowd. He began saying to his disciples first, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What's the evil influence of the Pharisees? Hypocrisy. They're phonies. You know what that means? It means they cover up the truth about themselves. They're wearing masks. They're fakes. Then he uses the same statement in verse 2 that he uses in verse 26 of our text. For there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And what it means is that someday the truth is going to be told. The hypocrites will be unmasked and the truly righteous ones will be rewarded. Over in Luke 8, the same phrase is used again. Luke 8, 16. Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come, come in may see the light. That's exactly what the Lord is going to do because the next words out of his mouth in verse 17 are, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. God is going to bring everything to light in the future, and it's going to be shown then what the real value of every person's life truly was. So you can save your reputation here and lose your reward there. That's your choice. But someday the values are going to be reversed. Jesus says you don't need to be afraid of the world. It's so temporary. Whatever they say about you, whatever they may do to react to you, someday God's going to vindicate you. We, re we read in Revelation 22, 21, where Jesus said he's going to come and reward everyone according to what he's done in his life. And in discussing this in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, Paul says that no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. 
But then look what he says that we should use to build on that foundation. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Those are the building materials that we're using in our work for the Lord. And some of them obviously aren't worth very much. So consequently, verse 13 says each man's work will become evident for the day will indicate it because it's revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So believers cannot lose their salvation, but they can lose out on eternal rewards. The truth will come out on that final day when we stand before the Bema seat of judgment and are rewarded for what we've done in this life for Jesus Christ. Writing in Ecclesiastes, Solomon perceived this truth. He, he says in Ecclesiastes 11.9, Be glad, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be merry during the days of young manhood, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sights of your eyes. In other words, do your own thing, live it up, sow your wild oats if you want to, live it up. And then he concludes with this admonition. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all of these things. In other words, if you decide to live that way now, just realize someday you're going to pay. And then as he concludes the book in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all that has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments because that this is the end of the matter for all mankind. Why? Verse 14. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God's going to open it all up. Everything, uncover, everything that's covered up will be uncovered. Everything hidden will be made known. So my friends, that's the perspective we want. Someday God's going to look at the record of our life. God's going to expose everything. And those who have looked like they were winners are going to turn out to be eternal losers. And the losers who've been persecuted for their faith are going to be the winners forever. That's the plan. So we aren't to be afraid of what the world does because we aren't looking, we're looking for an eternal vindication at the hands of our Father God. What are we to do? Look at verse 27. What I tell you in the darkness... Speak in the light. Back in our text. I'm sorry. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. The idea is this. Jesus is saying, I've been telling you the secrets in your ear. Now I want you to tell the whole world. See, there are no secrets in Christianity. I know that there's a couple of books out there titled The Secrets to the Christian Life and The Christian Secret to a Happy Life. I don't like that because anything you need to know in terms of the Christian life is found in God's word. And that's not a secret. And all of the fraternal lodges and societies out there that have secret rites and ceremonies have no part in the work of God's kingdoms, so no matter how much they may try to defend their religious purposes and standards. So if some group comes along like the United Ancient Order of Druids or the Veiled Prophet Organization or the Ancient order of the hibernarians or the freemasons those are all groups by the way and tells you we have secret rights just know that theology behind all of those groups is heretical and there are no secrets in christianity 
Their perspective is not a Christian perspective. Nothing at all in Christianity is to be held in secret. Jesus says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. There are no secrets. We're to give the message as we receive the message. During New Testament times, Jewish rabbis would often train their students to speak publicly by standing beside them and whispering in their ears. And what the student heard whispered in his ear, he would then speak aloud. And so he learned public speaking in that way. And what Jesus says he was doing, in effect, was whispering in the ears of the disciples so that they could then proclaim publicly so that everyone could hear. Now, please note this. The way this applies to us is that whatever you hear whispered in your ear from the word of God, you are to speak aloud to the world, holding nothing back. What the Lord has made known to us, we are to make known to others. There are no secrets. And that includes what sound pastors and Bible teachers teach you. We aren't teaching you anything that is a secret. In fact, we post our sermons and Sunday school lessons on public websites for anyone to hear. We aren't hiding it, and you shouldn't either. But let me warn you, don't proclaim or share the stuff that comes from false teachers that are everywhere out there. Don't be sharing stuff by people like Joel Osteen or Bill Johnson or Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick or Rick Warren or Sarah Young or Joyce Meyer, Jen Hatmaker or Beth Moore. And that's just a few of the many out there. Now, some of you ladies may be surprised to hear me add Beth Moore to that list. But frankly, she's gone off the rails theologically over the last several years. She's endorsed Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer. She claims to hear the voice of God and receive visions. She uses an allegorical interpretation of scripture. She recommends a mystical form of Bible reading associated with Roman Catholic mystics in which you empty your brain and then listen for God to speak to you. Uh, it does away completely with a careful exegetical study of scripture. She endorses the whole woke agenda and has become very ecumenical. Uh, she left the Southern Baptist Convention when it finally started clamping down on her unwillingness to take a stand on so-called homosexual Christians and her support for women preachers in the church. And so she's now an Anglican. Uh, she does a very good job of hiding her beliefs on controversial issues in our culture by making very vague and cryptic statements about them. She clearly wants to keep her viewpoints on those matters secret because of the turmoil that would occur among the many Southern Baptist ladies who still follow her ministry. So for all of those reasons, you will not see a ladies class or Bible study here at Lakeside using Beth Moore's material and don't be encouraging other women in your life to study her material. She is a she-wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, getting back on track. <laughs> Let me see where I'm at. No, we're going to have to stop. Going to have to stop. Uh, any uh, thoughts or comments now that I have uh, publicly castigated perhaps the best known female in when you spoke about the democy and judgment and rewards will God bring our failures and successes to light in a punitive fashion and I'm thinking about my own struggles, as well as somebody like 
the Apostle Peter, who was mighty but also struggled. We know in Galatians he took a step backwards. So how is God going to address maybe the trajectory of our lives? Does that make sense? My answer is scripture. As far as the east is from the west, so I have removed their sins from them. The Bama Seat of Christ is a time of great rejoicing and reward, not a time of punitive judgment. All those are the works that get burned up. Those are the works that get burned up. Not for believers. Not believers. The Bama Seat is, is only for believers, not for unbelievers. Yeah, yeah. The Bama Seat is for believers. The Great White Throne Judgment is unbelievers. Yes, next hand was over here. Uh, disciple must emulate master, fear God, confess the Lord, forsake his family. What were the last two, if you don't mind? I don't remember. <laughs> um, let me, uh, just a minute. Just a second here and I'll be there. Last two are he follows his call, he receives a reward. Okay? Rich. You have a question about uh, Matthew 11, verse 11, that talks about John the Baptist, that he was the greatest person that uh, was mm -hmm. born. So you would assume that he would... Uh, You're ahead of me. He would <laughs> receive many rewards, but yet it says, uh, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So... How do you um, translate that as far as uh, you know sharing the wars? Well, it's too complicated an answer to get into right now. Okay. But uh, I will be addressing that when I get to chapter 11 in great detail. Okay. And if you're not still in Florida at the time, we post them online. The lessons online. Just curious. So. Anything else? Yes. Before the BBC. It doesn't specifically state that. Are we the sheep that are separated from the goats? No, that's the uh, different that's different. That's different time. We're talking in the tribulation saints. Go ahead. I see as your mouth is just aching to answer there, Frank. <laughs> Your turn next, and your turn next. It happens instantaneously. This is supernatural. We have to take our human thoughts out of it and realize we're going to be before, the, before God. And so the great white throne, they're going to be judged instantaneously. Same thing with the great God, uh, same thing with the demon seat. So it's not like all the Christians that have ever lived are going to line up in a long line, and one by one, Jesus is going to start checking them off. That's what we typically think. But you got to understand, that's not how heaven works. Heaven is not limited by time. Okay, heaven is not limited where we're going to be in line. Okay, Frank, you're next. Pam, you're next. It doesn't work that way. Heaven is, is totally different. And a lot of times when we look at the descriptions of heaven, it's given human uh, terms because that's how we think. But when we're there, it's not going to be that way. We have to understand this is huge. This is supernatural. This is all in God's timing. He does it. So when he opens up the books, 
and you know those who are not written in the book are cast into the lake of fire. He doesn't go one by one. So you're gone. You're gone. You're gone. It happens instantaneously. And so that's how we have to think of heaven. It's hard because we don't have anything to compare it to here. But that's how heaven works. I hope that makes sense. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Well, our time is up. Frank, keep going and close this with prayer. <laughs> God and Father, we thank you for your word.